0: instead of arguing with them about how they're wrong, you might consider just getting curious. Huh, well, what is it that, you know, that I'm doing if they haven't included what you're doing? What's up everyone and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry
1: to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is such a treat for me to be in this space together with all of you and with my friend, Carol Robin. Carol and I met years ago when she was on the faculty at Stanford. She is the trailblazer behind Stanford's most famous and most impactful course, officially called Interpersonal Dynamics, affectionately called Touchy Feely she taught and led that course for decades and was really thought of as the heart of the school for a very long time. More recently, she is the co-author of Connect, which is a guide to building exceptional relationships. We're going to center our conversation on her recent book, but also pull in lots of threads from her work in general and from our shared history. Carol, such a treat to have you here. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, right back at you. What a treat, and so excited to be able to support your wonderful work with these folks. I've just always really been compelled by your mission, and I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I appreciate you and you've been involved from the very, very beginning. and, As we kick off this conversation, Carol, we sent out the book to 50 Breakliners. Many of them are here today. And I know, I'm so excited. And our whole team has also purchased the book. And I want to just get into your motivation. Why did you write the book? What is the central thesis? Tell us a little bit more about at the high level. Tell us more about why
0: this is so crucial. Well, here's the short story. The short story, short-ish. David and I had both independently been approached many times to write a book about touchy-feely. David is really kind of the father of touchy-feely. But I came along about 20 years after he'd started the course, and I was there for almost 20 more years. And then I became known as the queen of touchy-feely. So we'd been approached independently and together, and we kept saying, no, no, you're not going to learn how to actually create better relationships with other people by Reading about it, you're actually going to have to engage with other people. So, no. And by the way, our students don't learn about this by reading about it or listening to us lecture. They learn about it because they engage with each other with a little structure that we provide. So, we got talked into it basically by a very, very clever editor who also is a good salesman who said, So, how are you okay with the fact that thousands of students for decades have said this course was worth the entire price of tuition? And there is no book. And the only people who get to actually learn this are those that are privileged enough and lucky enough to get into the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And that's how he got us. So David and I looked at each other and said, well, I guess we're going to have to write a book. It took us over four years. And I equate it to having been the equivalent of pregnant for three and a half years and in labor for six months. And ever since it came out last February, I have felt like that single mother wondering where the heck her village is that's supposed to be helping her raise it, to take the metaphor all the way. So people have asked me, would you do it again? People have asked me, are you glad you have a book? The answer is unequivocally yes. They've asked me if I do it again. I do not pass the Pico second test on that one. Not so sure, but I'm glad it exists.
1: I'm so glad it exists too. And Carol, we've talked about the fact that you really view you and david and you know the legions of students that that you've taught and other folks that that have come into contact with you view this information as a way to build better relationships not just with our teammates and our colleagues but within our homes my husband and i both took carol and david's course and that was about 20 years ago. And I was just telling Carol, we just used terminology from that course over the weekend yet again. So it really is a, a way to build relationships across the board and, and even across our entire society if we can yeah. equip people.
0: In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that because I get calls and letters and emails and visits from former students 15, 20 years later. And I get as many, I just became a CEO. I owe it all to what I learned in touchy-feely, or I just got promoted and I used everything I learned, but I get as many, if not more, pretty sure your class just saved my marriage. Mm -hmm. I get, I just reconciled my relationship with my best friend with whom I had not talked to for a year. Mm -hmm. Thank you for finally writing a book so I could make them read chapters seven, nine, and 10. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we actually figured out how to repair our relationship. Because mm-hmm. they didn't go to the GSB. So I think the most compelling aspect of writing a book that could get out into the world was because I believe with every cell of my body that if we could get arm a critical number of people in the world with these skills and these competencies, we just we wouldn't have just better teams and better organizations. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd also have healthier families. We'd have more functional schools. We'd have more robust communities. When I dream really big, maybe we'd have a more functional government. That may be a step too far. But I really believe that with all my heart. And that's what saddens me about how hard it's been to get the word out into the world that the book exists.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into some of the the concepts of the book, because we really want this hour together to be about skill building. Like we should all be leaving this conversation feeling equipped to do things, in a more effective way when it comes to building our relationships communicating with each other. And I wanted to actually start with one of the sort of central frameworks within the book this concept of pinches versus crunches. Can you talk to us about what what that means to
0: you? Yeah. So every relationship no matter how great it is has times at which the other person does things that are slightly annoying, mildly annoying, a little irritating, Maybe very irritating, but for a little bit. So we call those pinches. The vocabulary in and of itself helps because, like, I can say to my husband, I'm feeling a pinch. And then he understands it's not huge, but if we don't address it, it's going to become what we call a crunch. (laughs) So there's a chapter in the book called Pinches versus Crunches. So the concept of pinches is talk about it when it's a little smaller, so much easier. And the idea is that what we don't do often is we don't notice that something is bothering us, or we just dismiss it. One of the reasons it's called touchy-feely is because of the emphasis on feelings, not touching. And the whole idea that we have these internal antenna that we can hone to pick up more signals on what's going on for us. And hone our external antenna that might pick up signals on what's going on for the other person. If we are really working on our internal antenna, we notice, oh, I'm annoyed. Now I have a choice. I can say, I'm going to say something or I'm not going to say something. And maybe I decide, eh, I'm going to let it go for now. Then Andy does the same thing again. And now I'm a little more annoyed. Now I have a new choice. Well, am I going to say something now? Am I going to let it go again? And, you know, one of the things that happens, unfortunately, is that we say, "Ah, it's not worth it. It's not a big deal. It's not worth it. Next time you think that, substitute the word I, you, or we for it. I'm not worth it. You're not worth it. We're not worth it. And then ask yourself again, whether mentioning the pinch and figuring out whether there's a way to resolve it before it becomes a crunch is worth it.
1: It's just so important. And the emphasis on like leaning in to the conversation and leaning into the problem solving while things are still solvable is so important. But we tend to have a lot of discomfort around feedback. Yes. Um, Yes. And can you talk to us a little bit about that relationship between our hesitation to provide feedback
0: and this sort of continuum from pinches to crunches? Sure, sure. And even feedback about something that's not even a pinch, something that's actually substantive. So we all have mental models, these beliefs and assumptions about what will happen. I'm going to come back and share a little anecdote with you that might be helpful for everyone to remember about feedback. However, before I do, if I'm doing something that's annoying you and you don't tell me, what am I likely to do? Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Why would I stop? I have no idea. So then I'll keep doing it. Then you'll get more irritated. And then you'll finally say something and I'll say, well, geez, why didn't you tell me way back when you were only mildly irritated? So let's just think about the fact that we don't really do ourselves or the other person or the relationship any service or any good if we don't say something. However, we're afraid to say something. We hold these mental models that it's gonna be like, we've all stepped in a pile of doo-doo when we tried to give somebody feedback. And we have all seen somebody else (laughs) step in a maybe even bigger pile of doo-doo. So our mental models come from our experience. But the problem is that we don't ever stop to update those mental models or test their ongoing validity. So let's start, let me give you this little short anecdote, which I think is memorable. And and the next time you think, I don't know if I'm going to say that, uh, maybe you'll remember. This is the story of my husband, Andy, and my son, Nick, who is now 35, but who at the time was 16 and a half, was living in Palo Alto, California, was going to go to look at colleges on the East Coast, because of course, God forbid he should go to any of the two colleges within a 50 mile radius of where we live, some of the best in the world. So he's going to go east, and my husband, Andy's going to take him. So Nick comes into the kitchen, and he says, Mom, Mom, um, I can't go with Daddy on this trip. you got to find a way to take me. And I said, well, first of all, I can't. Our spring breaks don't correspond. Either you go with Daddy or you don't go at all. But what's going on? He says, oh, my God, Mom, you know Daddy. He's like the Energizer bunny. He's going to be at the front of every tour. He's going to ask a million questions. All the other kids are going to say, oh my God, that poor guy, that's his dad. I'm going to be so embarrassed. I'm going to be mortified. Don't send us. It's going to be terrible. At which point I said, well, gee, Nick, it sounds like you've got feedback for your dad. Now, I don't know how many of you remember the teenage eye roll, but I get the massive teenage eye roll. How could I have not known that was going to be your answer? He says. And then he says, but mom, can you imagine how much that'll hurt his feelings? And I said, what do you think is going to hurt his feelings more for you not to tell him, for you to find some end run around this and for him to never find out and then have less opportunity to spend more really important time with you and quality time. with you?" And he says, well, can you tell him? I said, no, honey, sorry. we both know that's not how feedback works. So that night at dinner, he comes over, he was sitting at the other side of the table. He comes over and he sits next to me. He says, so dad. Mom says, I have to tell you something. (laughs) However you need to get into the conversation is fine. And Andy says, yes, Nick. And he says, I don't want to go on this trip with you. I'm really, I'm scared to go on this trip. We're going to have a million fights. You're going to be the Energizer Bunny. I'm going to be embarrassed. I don't want to go. So now my husband has also by then been well-trained on how to receive feedback. So what do you imagine are the first words out of my husband's mouth when Nick says that? thank you because if there's one mental model that you've got to shift in order to have better relationships it's that feedback is always a gift it's data and you're always better off with more data than less data gives you more choices now sometimes it's wrapped in a really ugly wrapping you can't even tell there's a gift in there but it's always data so of course andy says wow nick thank you he said I can't tell you how much I appreciate you caring enough about our relationship to tell me that. I bet that was hard. At which point, of course, Nick's shoulders relax. And then Andy says, what shall we do about it? Because the purpose of feedback is not for Andy to try not to be an energizer bunny. The purpose of constructive feedback is a problem-solving conversation. What shall we do about it? At which point, you know, They had an interesting conversation, the conclusion of which was they were going to park the car at a place certain when they arrived at each campus and they would go their separate ways. And if they joined the same tour, nobody would know they were related. Andy could be at the front of the line, ask all the questions he wanted. Nick could walk away if he wanted or stay. They would meet back at the car at a certain time. And Andy would wait until Nick said, "Okay, Dad, I'm ready to talk about this campus versus the last one. And they went. And that trip completely changed their relationship. And of course, Nick did go east. (laughs) And the bookend of that story is that when Nick decided to come back west to a well-known business school in Palo Alto, California, he called Andy and said, hey, dad, how about a road trip? I need to bring all my crap home. So the next time you're worried about what's going to happen if you give somebody feedback, remember Nick and Andy. And that's why I share the story.
1: I love that story. And I'm always struck by how skilled Andy is. And of course he is because he's your husband. But one of the things that you've said is that feedback is as much about the giver as it is about the receiver. And I think this story
0: illustrates that. But can you talk to us more about that concept? Yeah, sure. It's useful to remember that the feedback you get, when you're getting good feedback, you're getting feedback on behavior. You're not getting feedback on stories somebody's making up about you. You're not getting feedback on attributions or imputed motives. You're getting feedback about behavior you engage in that's problematic for the other person. So it's always useful to remember that what's, prob- what's problematic for Nick is not in the least bit problematic for me. I love the Energizer Bunny in Andy. And Andy knows that. So it's a little easier for him not to take any piece of feedback so personally when he sees it as, oh, well, I'm learning something important about Nick here. Not surprising. He's 16 and a half years old. You know how most 16 and a half year old boys feel about their parents. So the point, though, is that embedded in any piece of feedback is disclosure. If you get curious. So, when somebody provides a piece of feedback for you, especially if it stings or doesn't feel good or doesn't feel right, instead of arguing with them about how they're wrong, you might consider just getting curious. Huh. Well, what is it that, you know, that I'm doing if they haven't included what you're doing? And, you know, when have you seen that show up? And what would it look like if I was still being curious, but not? bugging you in the way I was expressing my curiosity. So the more you can be curious, the more open, and by the way, the more likely I'm going to be to give you feedback. If the first Mm -hmm. thing you do is shut me down, tell me why I'm wrong and make me feel bad and really regret having told you, I'm certainly not going to tell you anymore.
1: That last comment reminds me, you sometimes say that creating a feedback-rich environment
0: requires you to manage your defensiveness. Absolutely. (laughs) And by the way, you have to manage yours. You have to model managing yours. And no matter how great you get at giving feedback, other people will get defensive. So instead of seeing it as like, ah, this terrible thing, it's like more data. Oh, look at that. And remember that defensiveness is not necessarily a bad thing. If you feel defensive, I've probably hit on something that matters. Otherwise, you just dismiss me. And then maybe I can get curious about the source of defensiveness. It shows up in different ways. Some people are in you know just are get angry back. some people you know deny that they're doing it. it. doesn't matter how it shows up, but it's another opportunity for exploration. Every interaction with another human being, whether it's good or not good, is an opportunity to learn. It's an Mm -hmm. opportunity to learn about yourself. It's an opportunity to learn about them. And it's an opportunity to learn about building relationships, if that's Mm -hmm. your orientation. Mm
1: -hmm. You say you can't be curious until you suspend judgment. Yeah. Which is sometimes really
0: hard to do. (laughs) It's very hard to do. And you know what? I think first of all, we're not very well-trained to just stay curious. We are, you know, from a young age, we're trained to draw conclusions. (laughs) And in business, especially, we're really not trained to stay curious. Mm. We're trained to to go into advocacy mode, decide what's right and go into advocacy. Do -hmm. you know that the research is unequivocal that teams that spend more time in inquiry than advocacy are the highest performing teams? Mm. However, you know, it's hard to suspend judgment because, of course, you have an opinion. And we've been rewarded often for expressing our opinions, and we've been able to push things along when we've been vociferous and aggressive about the way that we talk about our opinions. But when it comes to developing stronger, more robust relationships, the more curious we can stay for longer the more likely we are to have a better outcome.
1: Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, I mean, partly because I think our society in general, we have this underdeveloped muscle with respect to feedback and just consequential conversations in general. And you have this turn of phrase, which is instead of don't just sit there, do something, you say, don't just do something, sit there. And it's that this whole idea of being willing to sit with the discomfort when we really don't want to, because we, you know, we can have this knee jerk reaction, like this thing is hurting. So I'm going to run that way. And instead it's really about going into
0: absorption mode and understanding mode. Right. And actually noticing the discomfort and getting curious about your own discomfort. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is making me really uncomfortable. I wonder what that's about. -hmm. Now, it's hard to do at the same time that you're trying to have a conversation. It might be a good thing to reflect on later. And then you might have something to come back to that same person with and say, you know, I was really uncomfortable. And, you know, now that I've been thinking more about it, I've been realizing that I was afraid. I was afraid that, you know, this was going to escalate. I was afraid you were going to think I was a jerk. Also, you don't have to feel like you've got to resolve it all in one sitting. Mm -hmm. You could put a pin in it. I don't advocate. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. So I think I'll just walk away <laughs> in the book. You'll, you know, you'll read all about, you know, the married couple where that's what she does repeatedly, you know, walk away. And that's not necessarily going to build a stronger relationship, but you can decide that you're so worked up and so agitated or so, or feeling so vulnerable that you need a moment. You know what? I can tell that I'm really feeling agitated I want to take just 10 minutes and think about what's going on for me. Can we come back to this in 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I wanted to unpack that concept in two different ways, actually. And Carol, you know, my husband, Michael, and we have completely different temperaments. I'm very Italian, like quick to have an opinion, quick to want to get in there, you know, spicy, spicy. And then I say my thing and I'm done. Like I feel great. I'm I have total catharsis. Yeah, you know, like it's over, right? You got it off my husband. <laughs> got off my chest. Like on to the next thing. Super slow burn. Takes a lot to get him, you know, to be angry or you know to have some kind of frustrated reaction. And then really long tail where he's got to process it for a long, long time. Like long after I've moved on. When you have two people with two really different temperaments and styles like that, what are your suggestions for how do we come together in a way that's productive for both of us yeah. so that we can problem solve this while
0: yeah. also respecting each other's styles? Yeah. So, you know, Michael was actually in the touchy-feely weekend that I facilitated when he was my student. So I remember, well, you know, Michael, like many others, have a much higher threshold before they start to feel much. And they also sometimes have trouble accessing the feelings at all. Some of that is usually temperament. Some of that sometimes is the way you've been raised. Think about what we do to little kids. They go to the park, they fall down and and they're crying. And what do we do? We run over them and say, you're okay, you're okay. We don't say, oh, I bet that hurts. Yeah, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Because we're uncomfortable with the feelings. So God forbid they should have any feelings or express. them. So coming back to your question, and we talked about this for a moment before everybody joined us, the course was called Interpersonal Dynamics, but I used to think it ought to be called Connecting Across Differences. And I mean differences of all kinds. Usually people think of the biggies. I mean differences in style, differences in personality, differences in the way you look at the world. It's easy to connect with people that are just like you and to build deeper, stronger relationships with people that see the world the way you do. Tend to respond the way you do. So I think first you start with where you already started, Bethany, which is that you acknowledge, you acknowledge that you're different and that neither one of you is right or wrong or good or bad. You're just different. And then you talk about what you each need based on that difference. So maybe Michael needs more time and If you've talked about this difference, and he says, this would be one of those moments where I actually need a little more time, Bethany, then you're more likely to give it to him. If you've never talked about it, if you've never named it, you've never put a light on it, well, then, you know, he's going to say, Bethany, I need more time. you're going to say, what the F? Or whatever your favorite saying is. That's what I would say. So the other thing is to, let's assume for a moment that you really care about your relationship. Learning how to debrief what happened when it all went sideways is also really important. Instead of having it continue to escalate, say, okay, I'm not entirely sure what's going on right now, but I think maybe what we should do is, you know, maybe take 15 minutes, each think about it, and then come back and see if we can figure out how did we get into this in the first place? And what do we want to do about it? And at that point, you can decide you... Maybe Michael says, I need even more time. And then maybe you you say, well, just how much time you need. (laughs) And then maybe that's the first problem you solve. He might want a day to think about it. You might want an instant reaction. So maybe he has to push himself a little bit to access it a little bit more. Now, in the appendix of your book is the vocabulary of feelings, which, by the way, is part of the syllabus in the course how sad is it that we have to develop a vocabulary of feelings? Because <laughs> that's how hard it is for people to access what they're feeling. But anyway, one thing that students, students used to walk around with a laminated vocabulary of feelings. And one thing that all my leaders in tech, CEO founders have done is they've created a laminated version of that for every one of their employees. And you know what? When they're having a conversation, they look at it. They're like, I feel, and then they're like, <sighs> Incredibly disappointed, whereas they might have started with furious until they looked at the vocabulary. And by the way, I probably experience hearing that you're disappointed very differently than that you're furious. And you've
1: talked about anger as a secondary emotion, yeah. really and and really encouraging people to to peel that back and see what is fueling
0: the anger exactly. And start with yourself. What am I worked up about? And remember that anger is often a secondary emotion to fear or hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because we've been socialized to suppress our feelings and because we've been social and a lot of times we've been socialized to think that anger, as long as it's expressed appropriately is okay. That's like mm-hmm. the only feeling that's okay, especially for men, because otherwise mm-hmm. you're like a wuss or, you know, you're weak or some darn thing.
1: hmm
0: So if you're afraid and admit it, you're a wuss. If you're Mm -hmm. hurt and admit it, you're a wuss. So, okay, I think I'll settle for anger. And by the way, this happens to women in highly male-dominated environments too. Mm -hmm. That's the only feeling that's allowed. But it's just not a primary emotion 99% Mm -hmm. of the time. Hmm.
1: The other question that was embedded in that story too was, so Carol and I've known each other for a long time. And Carol was someone I turned to when I was deeply wounded by some professional colleagues, like very, very wounded, like deep sense of betrayal. And I remember thinking, I am feeling this so acutely right now and not actually feeling equipped to express it to those people in a way that was productive. And so can we talk about, where our responsibility falls. You know, when, when I I know I'm worth it, I know that person is worth it. I know we're worth it, but I'm really hurt right now. And I just don't feel like I've got what I need to express
0: myself the way that I think would be productive at the time. So that's interesting, Bethany, because I have a couple thoughts about that. And so that you all know, I had a parallel experience at Stanford where I was unbelievably hurt. And it resulted in my departure from Stanford, just like I think Bethany's five years ago. And I was deeply hurt manifested as unbelievable anger. And I, in the case of one of those relationships in particular, he was not worth it Hmm. and we were not worth it. Mm -hmm. And I was very clear about that. And I was Mm -hmm. not going to invest one more ounce Of energy in trying to repair that relationship. Hmm. Now, by contrast, David, my co-author and I have been very close colleagues and dear friends for a long time. We had a huge fight around the time that I was leaving Stanford. It's the last chapter in the book. Don't go all the way to that chapter. Try reading the whole book. Then you'll understand how the last chapter unfolds better, but you can go all the way there. The bottom line is that I said I would never talk to him again. And a bunch of people in my life, including my family and other close colleagues said, really, you're going to throw away one of the most important relationships of your life. And I was so wounded and felt so betrayed by him that I said, yeah, I'm just not willing to invest anymore. Now, this is David. This is not the guy who I actually chose not to invest more. And, you know, David kept trying. And every time he tried, I was a little more open to not being quite as closed. And then at some point, all the voices from my family and my colleagues and my friends and David's continuing trying created a a situation in which I was like, okay, I'll give it, you know. I'll at least meet with them. We can at least talk about it. And in fact, you know, spoiler alert, at the end of that chapter, we talk about a Japanese art form called kintsugi. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but you know, when a vase is broken, it's repaired by putting, they mix the glue in with precious metals like platinum or gold. And that's what they repair the vase with so that the cracks aren't covered up they're highlighted, and they're highlighted as beautiful. And the vase is even stronger, stronger and more beautiful. So you know, but it does take two to tango.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's such a poignant and really beautiful example of our ability to change our minds. You know, as we get more data, as you as you describe yeah. feedback, we can change our minds if you know if circumstances change. Okay, Carol, I wanted to ask a couple questions from our audience. Yes. Leanne, actually, I wanted to go to Jacob's question first, because I'm asking for a friend too. Yes. Let's see. He says, how do you deal with a situation where you know you're wrong? <laughs> that might be me, but you still have that sense of a pinch.
0: Yeah. Well, I always believe in starting with being real and disclosure And we can talk about appropriate disclosure, but in a situation like this, I would start with as much as I know I'm wrong, I just still feel crappy about this. Now, whoever's on the the receiving end of that is likely to receive that very differently than you just talking about how, you know, irritated you are. And by the way, feeling irritated is not wrong. Feelings have legitimacy in their own right. And that's one of the reasons that we don't express them because we don't think we're right about them. What you might not be right about is the reason that you feel it, but the feeling is right. The feeling is the feeling. Years ago, now we're going way back when my Nick was five, I was walking him to kindergarten and Molly was in a stroller, she was three, and we're crossing the street and we're at a stop sign. It's, traffic is going both ways. We're at the stop sign in the middle, and there's a truck parked as we're going to cross that we couldn't see beyond, and Nick is in front of me, and he goes to cross, and out of the corner of my eye, I notice a woman who's whipped around the truck and is about to run the, path, the stop sign, and I grab Nick, and I yank him back, and I say, Nick, don't do that, and God bless him. He says, Mommy, why are you mad at me? And I said, oh, honey, First of all, I'm not mad at you. I was mad at that lady. But beyond that, I was really scared. So the anger that came up and the fear that came up was absolutely legitimate, but not at little Nick. Thank
1: you, Carol. Leanne has a question, which is, what is a good way to open the door for these types of conversations with difficult team members? And I think this is so important because there's such huge gaps in skill levels And in ability and willingness to engage in the tough stuff. Yeah.
0: So I think I always, when, when I'm dealing with somebody who's not very receptive and not very open, I always start with my intent and with my own feelings. So I want to have this conversation with you. I feel jittery about it because It feels important to me. You're important to me. Our relationship is important to me. And by the way, the person can be important to you even if it's in business. I think, you know, I value, you know, robust relationships and we don't have to be best friends, but I think it's important for us to have a functional relationship. And right now this relationship doesn't feel functional to me. And I'm invested in getting to a place where it works better for both of us. So are you open to having the conversation? And is there something about where we have it, when we have it, how we have it, that will make it easier for you? So start with acknowledging, A, your intent, B, that it might be difficult, and C, that they're not out of control, that they have just as much say in how you go about engaging in the conversation in the first place. So that's... that's the first place to start. It also ties to, I think, Christopher's question about what do you do about resistance, continual resistance. Now, once you've tried to set it up that way, and they're like, yeah, not now, not now, not ever. (laughs) Now you have an opportunity to give them feedback on the impact of that choice that they're making on you. Gee, when I continuously make attempts to have a conversation with you about something that I think is important and I think would benefit both of us. And you continually tell me, not now, not be behaviorally specific. That's the fifth time that I've approached you and asked if we could talk about X. And your answer has been Z and Y. And what's happening for me now is I'm feeling less and less inclined to give you the feedback. Is that what you want? Because if you're doing something that's problematic for me, I would think you'd be better off knowing it so that we could work through it. So you've got feedback on how they're not taking feedback.
1: Carol, I think this is a good moment to introduce the continuum of relationships because I think what we're hearing from, from people in the audience is they might be on the underdeveloped end of that continuum. And there's a way to kind of move it to a more productive place. Sure.
0: Okay, let me share that. So all relationships exist on a continuum from contact and no connection. Those are your hundreds of Facebook friends to what we came to call exceptional based on what we saw the students reach and achieve in the course. So contact and no connection also, by the way, sometimes is just plain old dysfunction. (laughs) As we move along the continuum, we need some skills and competencies to move along it toward exceptional. But even if the goal is not exceptional, you get to robust and function, which is what you might be talking about in business. You don't, it doesn't have to be exceptional, but it does have to at least be functional. And there are six characteristics that are at the very front of the book that determine the extent to which you've moved along that continuum. And they include how known do you feel and how known does the other person feel by each other? How much do you trust that you won't use disclosures against each other? How honest are you with each other? How well do you resolve conflicts that are inevitable productively? And how invested are you in each other's learning and growth? And when you have all six of those, you've started to move down the continuum. And when you have them to a great extent, then you've moved into exceptional territory. Ask them what they've heard. Mm -hmm. When you've given somebody a piece of feedback and they've been resistant, Mm -hmm. before you walk away, throw in the towel, ask them Mm -hmm. what they heard. Mm -hmm. I remember years ago, I used to, when... Andy was first starting to learn how to cook. He's now a gourmet cook. He's great. But he would be in the kitchen. I'd see him struggling. And I'd walk into the kitchen. I'd say, can I help you with that? Mm -hmm. And his answer would be, don't tell me what to do. Anybody recognize that? And instead of getting angry, I was like, what did you hear me say? Because in my mind, I was like, I wasn't thinking that I had told him what to do. I was offering to help. But he heard, I'm trying to tell you what to do. So when he said, I heard you say, I don't know what I'm doing. And you need to help me. I said, oh, I'm so glad I asked. (laughs) Actually, I thought I said, can I help you with that? But if that's what you heard, I understand why it pissed you off. It's a really good example of staying
1: curious. You stayed curious. You didn't get drawn into a back and forth. I was
0: just trying to help would have been (laughs) like the typical reaction, right? That's why I don't offer to help more often. (laughs)
1: <laughs> George is wondering, would you use the same approach to feedback when giving it to a boss versus a peer versus a direct report?
0: Yeah. So nobody knows how good a job I am doing as a manager than the people I am managing. Nobody can give me better, more accurate feedback on whether or not I am doing a good job than those I'm trying to manage. And yet, depending on how I show up, I either encourage them to actually help me be better or discourage them from ever saying anything. And let's start with a belief that I hold that very few people get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I wonder how I can be a bigger asshole today than I was yesterday. I just don't think that's what most people do. They behave that way sometimes, but I don't think that's what they do. And, you know, The 95% of the people we label as psychopathic are not. (laughs) It's actually fairly rare. So now, does that mean that some people are a lot harder to give feedback to than others? Absolutely. Does that mean that it's even harder when someone is higher in the hierarchy than you are? And there's an even bigger power differential between you? Absolutely. And you're still holding incredibly valuable data and it's a gift. So first you've got to believe that you've got something useful and that it is a gift. And then you have to get better at how you deliver it, which is why there's several chapters in the book and a big part of the course on how to get better at delivering feedback in ways that are a little less likely to create as much defensiveness and a little more likely to have the other person be more open to learning more.
1: Mhm. And Carol, one of the central premises of the course is that in a relationship with two people, there are actually three realities. Realities, yes. And you introduce the concept of the net, and I think if there's just one practice that everyone here takes from this conversation, I would love for them to be familiar with that language so that okay. they can use it in their relationships.
0: Okay. Three realities, two people. There is This guy, how he sees the world, what his intent is and whatever he does, what his motives are, that's reality number one. Reality number two is what he does, whether it's verbal, nonverbal, that is the only reality these two people have in common. And then there's reality number three, which is how what he does impacts this woman. Okay. She knows the behavior and its impact. He knows the intent and his behavior. That's why two out of the three realities, only thing known to both parties at a particular point in time. Now imagine this thing that we call, think of a metaphorical net, meaning that this is her area of expertise, her side of the net. There's another one over here, which is his side of the net, but that makes it too confusing. So let's just stick with this right now. All right. So let me give you an example. Now we're going to go way, way back in time to a time when I was home. I'd chosen to be home for a few years with our kids. They were very little. My husband was a big time executive in the Valley. He would come home. He'd plop down on the chair and he'd start reading the newspaper. And I would hear him and I'd come running into the front of the house and I'd say, oh my God, you're home. Thank God you're home. You won't believe what happened today. I went to that new nursery school. Hasn't even opened yet. It's already full. Why are we raising kids in Palo Alto? This is crazy. This is blah, 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 blah. And Andy would say, "Hmm, mm mm-hmm," and I would say, "You're not listening. You are not listening." Is over the net. I am not in his head. I don't know whether he's listening or not. The only thing that I know is that I'm not feeling heard. But then he comes back. I don't say that. I say, "You're not listening." To which he says, "Yeah, I am. You went to that new nursery school. You're all worked up about it. And you know, now that does not." help me at all. Now I say, how can you be so insensitive? Calling my husband insensitive is probably the most insensitive thing in the world. He's one of the most sensitive men in the, on the planet. Or I say, you don't care. By the way, you don't care is over the net, unless he has said, sorry, Carol, I don't care. I am making an attribution. And that is only going to make him more defensive. What it sounds like when I stay on my side of the net is, honey, When you come home and I'm desperate for adult interaction, and I tell you about something difficult that went on in my day, and the only thing I get is a grunt in response, and or no eye contact and no emotional reaction to what I just said, I don't feel heard entirely on my side of the net. And when I don't feel heard, I feel hurt and resentful. When I feel hurt and resentful, I am less inclined to be there for you in the way I want to be for you. Now, he can't argue with me. Those are all my reactions. He can't argue with the fact that he made no eye contact and he only grunted or just repeated something. And now we can move into problem solving. So, what shall we do about it? Now, I didn't even have to ask the question. He said, Carol, if you want my undivided attention when I get home from the office, you're going to have to give me some time to unwind. It's like, oh, no kidding. How much time do you need? We're not dissimilar in our different styles as Bethany and Michael. How much time do you need? He says, I don't know, half an hour. I'm like, half an hour? Are you kidding? I've been counting down the minutes for you to get home. How about five minutes? We settled on 15. But the fact is, we were able to have a productive conversation because I learned how to provide the feedback in a way that would invite problem solving. So, if you remember nothing else from this session, here's the guideline. When you insert behavior, something that if we recorded on a videotape, everybody would agree. I feel, insert feeling, pull out your vocabulary of feelings. When you don't respond, I feel unimportant. When you interrupt me, I feel dismissed. See what I'm saying? In fact, even better, that's the third time you've interrupted me. And I feel. Irritated, okay, not, and this is the big mistake, the fatal mistake, when you insert behaviors, sometimes they don't. people don't even insert behavior, I feel that, or I feel like, it is grammatically impossible in English to express a feeling. If you started with, I feel that, or I feel like, try it. I feel that angry. I feel like sad. I feel that irritated. I feel that unhappy. I feel like frustrated, unless you're a valley girl. You don't speak that way. You're almost, and by the way, I feel that you don't care. There's not a feeling word in there. And it is an imputed motive. It's over the net, unless he said, I don't care. So watch the that's and the likes, man. And it's a discipline. It's not just uh, words, it is a discipline. And it's hard. Bethany can even give you her own story about that. <laughs>
1: yes, I can. Sure can. When just happened last weekend.
0: But we're coming But you up see, here's, here's the benefit. Bethany and Michael both know this model. They both yes. have this language. And all Bethany yes. had to say was, I think that was over the net. And then they yes. both immediately knew what had just happened.
1: Yes, that is so true. And so... We were lucky to both take the course at the same time, but even so everyone can read the book and we can all
0: train up the folks that we care about and folks around us. The other great thing about saying that's over the net rather than like pissing the other person off, you could say, so I hear that something is like really amiss here. Can we go back to what it is that I did and what the behavior is? Push them back to their side of the net. Then you've got data that you can actually work with. Okay. Go on. Yes. Okay.
1: I want to get to Pashche's question, which is with the workforce now hosting multiple generations, baby boomers to Gen Z, does one's approach to feelings and expressing them differ between each generation?
0: So interesting. I just got that question in a, in a workshop I did yesterday as well. So feelings are universal. One of the most powerful moments of my entire professional career at the GSB was when a Japanese student walked up to me and said, you know, I've been here for a year and a half. He was from Japan. And this class is the first time I have felt known or connected to anybody else, because it turns out that feelings, the language of feelings are universal. So now context matters, cultures matter the feelings are universal but the display rules and what's okay to say and not say when are not universal so having some sensitivity to that absolutely is important and matters now let's come back to your remember how i said this course should have been called connecting across differences those are some of the really big differences in style and in expectation and in you know needs but the feelings themselves, they are going to be the core of any relationships that get built. Now, how you decide to talk about them, when you decide to talk to, about them. So, vulnerability, we haven't talked about vulnerability, but vulnerability is at the core of all the stuff we've been talking about because you have to be willing to be a little vulnerable to allow yourself to be known. You have to be willing to be a little vulnerable to give somebody feedback. You have to be a little vulnerable to just even express curiosity in hopes that somebody else allowed themselves to be known, because what if they shut you down? So I think there are different expectations around vulnerability, and there are also different things that make different generations feel vulnerable. I also think that Gen Zers have different rules around vulnerability with each other than they do with somebody from a different generation. What's really like, I always think that's like really cool. Like, wow, what an opportunity for learning. That, so nobody ever does a class with Carol Robin without learning AFOG. AFOG stands for another fucking opportunity for growth. AFOG, when it all oh, goes to hell in a handbasket, it's an AFOG. When people are not talking to each other, it's an AFOG. Imagine creating, and it's in the book, and imagine creating a culture where that is the way people approach things that aren't working. Wow. Wonder what we're all going to learn from this. Wonder how we're going to sort this out. Imagine what a gift that is to the Gen Zers. Imagine what it, because they've got their whole careers ahead of them. And I also think that regardless of age, the largest complaint that research shows over and over for 50 years, the largest complaint from people who work in organizations is the lack of timely feedback. They don't find out they've got a problem until they've been put on a performance improvement program. That is Uh, unfair. Yeah, that's shocking. They don't find out that they're not going to get that promotion they've been wanting because the boss decided a long time ago they didn't have it. It's a travesty. And by the way, the boss doesn't lose a really great person doesn't know they've got a problem with the way they're managing a great person until the person quits. So for God's sake, create more feedback, rich cultures and environments. If you don't do anything else as a leader, nothing will serve you more than creating Mm -hmm. a culture where people will tell each other the truth. And I can't tell you how many times I've done workshops and leaders and managers will say, oh my God, but this takes so much time. And I say, well, okay, but you know, there's actually nothing more efficient than the truth. How many people do you want to like circle through before you decide that maybe you need to find out what's going on? So, and there's absolute ways to create feedback-rich cultures. And being a role model is a great place to start as a leader. By the way, don't just, you know, if you decide to outsource that to some training firm or you send your people to our leaders in tech, and if you're in tech and, and then you don't do it yourself, don't waste your time and money. hmm
1: Karen, I know that we're at time. And as we wrap up, I want to convey one other thing that you said recently, which I really loved because it reminds us of the benefit that we give when we give feedback. Sometimes it feels like such a risk. Mm -hmm. We forget that there's really a benefit there. And you said it's about creating an opportunity to test what draws us closer and makes us better leaders. Yeah. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your advice with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. So appreciate it. And thank you to everyone who joined tonight. It's so much fun to see all of you. Two, Carol, quick really,
0: please. Two quick things. One, follow me on LinkedIn, I post stuff all the time. And second, go to our book website which you'll see the link on the back of your book or the ladies can post it. There are free downloadable resources there, a self-assessment where you can see just, you know, how good are you at this stuff? Give it to other people, compare how you see yourself to how they see you. There's a free downloadable start your own learning group with all kinds of guides. So, and whatever you do, go use this because the only Mm -hmm. way you'll get good at it is by actually using it. And last Don't start with the most difficult and impossible relationship in your life. Don't start with the worst, most difficult person that you've never been able to get feedback to. Don't start with trying to connect with somebody who has batted you away repeatedly for years. We learn the 15% rule is a little bit at a time, but continue stretching outside your comfort zone. Otherwise you don't learn and you don't grow.
1: Carol, Robin, thank you so much. So appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your evenings. Thanks to everybody for joining tonight. So fun to see everybody. Thank, Thank you, you all.
0: Such a pleasure, Bethany. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved,
1: a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word. keeps these good vibes
0: rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.